She was public enemy number one at the time. Her name was Katie, and she went to school with us up until our senior year of high school. She was a really good volleyball player, and the only problem was the rest of the team stunk. They were no good. And so Katie, wanting to go on and play at the next level, play in college, decided that she would go to a different school. Now, in Ohio, where I grew up, it's not as easy as Wisconsin. You just choose a different school. You go to that school. In Ohio, you actually had to live in the school district. And it wasn't just any school that Katie was going to. She was going to our arch rival. And she was going to go to the arch rival and play volleyball for them. Now, the school I I went to, nobody really cared about volleyball all that much until this game. Katie's parents went and they rented an apartment so that she would have a place to, to have an address in that school district. And then all of a sudden it came time for her on her new team, our arch rivals, to come to our school to play the volleyball game. And the gym was packed and we were there and we were heckling her and we were yelling at her and we were trying to trying to get her off her game and anytime she would hit the ball into the net or out of bounds we would cheer and we would be excited and we would boo her and we would jeer her and her team still destroyed our team <clears throat> But what was what had just been so difficult for us, and the reason that the gym was packed in order to, to boost somebody when it was never the case before during a volleyball game, the reason we were so mad, the reason we were so offended is because she was on our team. She was on our side. And all of a sudden, everything changed, and, and she didn't just go anywhere. She went to our arch rival school. Now, they happened to be really good in volleyball, and she happened to get a scholarship and play at the next level. But, you know, when you're in high school, you don't think about those things. That's beside the point. How could somebody that was one of you go to your arch rival team and play against you and beat your team? And that's the reason that everyone was so up. Set. And sometimes in life, people make changes, people transition and, and do things differently, and it upsets people. And sometimes people become really angry. And in the midst of our look at the early church, we've been walking through the New Testament book of Acts together at Lakeside. In the midst of this, we have seen a phenomenal transformation. We have seen the conversion of an individual named Saul who we were introduced to just a couple chapters earlier in the book of Acts. If you have your phones or your tablets, in just a minute, we're going to get started in Acts chapter 9. And I'd invite you to download the Bible app. It's a free resource that you can find in whatever app store you utilize. And once you install it on your device, there are a number of great features within the Bible app. But one of them that we use frequently here at Lakeside is called the events feature. And you can either enable your locations or just write in Lakeside Community Church, Algoma will pop up. And you can follow along with us there right on your phone this morning. You can make notes. You can highlight things. It's a great resource. If you have a traditional Bible with you this morning, again, we're going to be in the New Testament book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 23 in just a couple minutes. Verse 23, Acts chapter 9. And if you're joining us via the stream this morning, thanks so much for joining us. My name is Brian. I'm part of the team here at Lakeside. And the verse will be available for you 
on the screen below. Now, before we dive in to our continuation of Acts chapter 9 this morning, I want to recap where we've been and what we've seen. The first few chapters of the book of Acts, we've seen the the Great Commission. Jesus delivered the Great Commission to go and make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And then Jesus ascends to heaven, and then we see that very thing happening. The disciples and the apostles, the followers of Jesus, are doing exactly what Jesus has told them to do. In Acts chapter 6, we were introduced, we were introduced to to this individual named Stephen who came on the scene and he was making sure that the church, that the people that were following Jesus were operating at the level that they should be. He was making sure that the church was having as much impact in in impacting as many lives as was possible. And he did such a good job at that, the people that were opposed to the message of Jesus hated him. So much so that in Acts chapter 7, they kill him. They kill Stephen as a result of the fact that he followed after Jesus and he was equipping other people to make sure that they were having as much impact as possible for the cause of Christ. And as he's killed in Acts chapter 7, we're introduced to an individual named Saul. And what we're told is that Saul is at this execution. And not only is he there, but he he is... He's excited about what's taken place. And then we fast forward to Acts chapter 8. And Saul is so excited by the fact that Stephen has been killed that he wants to persecute and he wants to kill more people that have made the decision to follow after Jesus. So he goes all throughout the city of Jerusalem and he starts arresting men and women, displacing their families and persecuting them as just because they had made the decision to follow after Jesus. And then we're told in the the first part of Acts chapter 9 that Saul, he isn't satisfied just wreaking havoc on the people that follow Jesus in Jerusalem. He wants these efforts to be expanded. He wants more people to die. He wants more people to be in prison. He wants more people to be persecuted who've placed their faith in Jesus. And so he decides he's going to go outside of the city to the region, and he's going to go there to continue to persecute people that made the decision to follow Jesus. But as we saw last week at the beginning part of Acts chapter 9, God supernaturally blinds Saul And Saul has an encounter with God, and it changes everything. And Saul, while he was going to persecute followers of Jesus, in the process becomes a follower of Jesus. And now everything is radically different about Saul. And Saul then goes to the people in Damascus who he originally was going to persecute, to try to imprison and try to kill. And now he goes to them, not as an adversary, but as somebody who, like them, has placed his faith and his trust in following after Jesus. The disciples in Damascus aren't so sure, but eventually they discover that this is legitimate that Saul is radically changed, that he is, he's completely different as a result of his encounter with Jesus. And that's where we pick up today in Acts 9, 23, where we read these words. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So Saul, who was headed to Damascus to kill people that followed after Jesus... 
and then had an encounter with Jesus and now is a follower of Jesus, now has Jews wanting to do to him what he originally set out to do to other people. The hunted, right? The hunter becomes the hunted. You reap what you sow. This, this is what we see here. That Saul went out with a purpose, and then his purpose changed because he had an encounter with Jesus, and that's what happens when we have an encounter with Jesus. And this is why we celebrate life change at Lakeside. Because we recognize that when we have an encounter with Jesus, when we follow after God, everything changes. Everything is different, and we celebrate that fact. We celebrate the fact that God changes people, and he changes them to to their core. And this is what's happened with Saul. But now the people have seen the transformation that's happened in Saul's life. And there are people that are opposed to the fact that Saul has now found hope, that Saul has now found a relationship with Jesus, and he now becomes the target. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And now we see that this group of Jews, they're stalking out the city. And they're just waiting. They're just waiting for Saul to leave the city so that they can pounce on him and they can kill him. That's what they're trying to do. And notice what happens. But it's the disciples. It's the followers of Jesus in Damascus who were originally targeted by Saul to be persecuted and killed as a result of their faith It is those very same people who see what's going on, who hear of the plot, and go to the one who originally set out to persecute and kill them and say, we're going to have a plan to save your life. Imagine with me for just a minute. Imagine with me for just one moment. If the disciples would have said, but wait a minute, we know his past. We know what he's done. We know the people. We know the fact that he was there when Stephen was killed and he applauded it. We're not going to help him. Now we look at that mindset and we say, How unchristian is that? That goes against everything that we know about the the nature of God, of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And and from from the outset, it doesn't sit well with us. And we say, no, of course. Of course this is how disciples respond. Of course this is how people that love and follow Jesus react when they see somebody else who loves and follows Jesus and they know that they're in danger, that they do everything they can. But don't Don't make any mistake. Saul had a past. And sometimes in life what happens is we're aware of people's past. And if we could remove ourselves from the situation and we could look at it and we could analyze it in the way that we can analyze this situation, we would say, well, of course we should respond in mercy. And of course we should respond with grace. And of course there should be an attitude of forgiveness. Yet when we're near the situation, that's not always the case. 
And we struggle sometimes because we know the past. Because we know the past impacted us or people that we know and people that we love and people that we care about. And as people that love and follow Jesus, we must celebrate changed lives. But what we have to recognize is everybody has a past. And as people that love and follow Jesus, we've got to get beyond the past and recognize that in Christ, everyone is a new creation. You know, everyone has a past, but some people have a past. And even then, even those people, we have to love, we have to, we have to recognize that God transforms those people. God transforms everyone that puts their faith and trust in him. But some of those transformations are a little bit bigger than others. And we have to safeguard our hearts. And we have to safeguard our lives to make sure that there is room in us as people that love and follow Jesus for us to welcome people, for us to model forgiveness, for us to model grace. And that's what we see here. And they helped Saul. The very people that he set out to persecute and kill are now assisting Saul and helping him stay alive. And they help him leave Damascus. Then we get to verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. He gets, Saul gets back to Jerusalem, back to where he started. Back to where we saw Stephen killed. Back to where he was going through house to house to house looking for Christians, having them imprisoned, having them persecuted. And he gets back to Jerusalem. He said, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus now. And they're like, get away. No. Stay out there. We're not so sure. And put yourself in the disciples in Jerusalem's shoes. They don't know what's gone on in Damascus. They don't know the transformation that's occurred. And now the very person who took so much pride and so much joy in persecuting and imprisoning them has now arrived on the scene. And they're hesitant. And he says, I'm a follower of Jesus. And they're afraid that he's a fraud. But Barnabas took him. And brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. The disciples aren't so sure. The disciples are apprehensive. The disciples aren't quick to welcome Saul into the fold. But then there's Barnabas. Then there's Barnabas. And that name might sound familiar to you as we've gone through the book of Acts. And it should. Because as we saw in Acts chapter 4, at the end of Acts chapter 4, that Barnabas was also known as the son of encouragement. He's the son of encouragement. And at the end of Acts chapter 4, he sold a field. He sold a field and he gave all of that money away to assist the efforts of the church. To meet the needs of those that also had placed their faith and trust in Jesus. He was incredibly generous. We see this at the end of Acts chapter 4. And here we see him emerge on the scene once again. And what is he doing? He's vouching for Saul. 
He is vouching for Saul. The other disciples are like, we're not so sure. You stay away. What does Barnabas do? He says, come on. Come on. The other disciples put their hands up. Barnabas says, come on. I know the transformation. I know what's happened. And I'll vouch for you. I'll vouch for you. And we all in life have to kind of think through the type of people that we want to be. And I don't know about you, but this is the type of person that I want to be. I want to be like Barnabas. I want to be incredibly generous. I want to be incredibly supportive. I want to be the person when everybody else is like, I'm not so sure that I'm like, no, you come on. You come on. Everybody else might not be so sure, but I recognize what God can do. I recognize that Jesus changes people. I recognize that we have hope. I recognize that the past is the past, but it doesn't have to define who we currently are because of what Jesus has done for us and made available on our behalf. I want to be like Barnabas. And then what happens? Verses 28 and 29 tell us. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. While the, while the other disciples, the other followers of Jesus aren't real sure about welcoming Saul into the fold, Barnabas says, come on. And what happens is that's exactly what occurs. Then Saul comes in and he starts boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus. And all of a sudden people hear this. People hear the one who was so opposed to Jesus, now proclaiming the hope that is found in Jesus, and the one who spent his life going through up to this point, and he would imprison people that followed after Jesus and persecute people that followed after Jesus. And he's now telling people, I found hope, and I've placed my hope and trust in a relationship with Jesus. Everything about me is different. Everything about me has changed. And people hear this message. And just as he had a problem with people that followed Jesus before he himself had an encounter with Jesus, now other people have a problem with him for following Jesus. And it's this group of the Hellenists. And what's fascinating to me is how God works all of this together. You know, the Hellenists were the same people that we were introduced to in Acts chapter 6, at the end of Acts chapter 6, who had a problem with Stephen. We saw Stephen was ultimately killed in Acts chapter 7. And it was the Hellenists who brought about killing Stephen. And there was Saul when Stephen was killed, applauding it and excited by it. And now the very same people who ushered that in want to kill Saul. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It multiplied. 
And now what happens? The followers of Jesus in Jerusalem, who were originally persecuted and imprisoned by Saul, now hear about the plot, yet another plot, that people want to kill Saul. And what does God do? God puts on their heart for them to be people that orchestrate the escape of Saul so that he would be spared. And that's exactly what happens. That the very people who were persecuted by Saul now intervene to save his life. That's the gospel. That's the change that God orchestrates. And that's what we have to be open to. That we recognize that there are people that have wronged us in the past and people have hurt us in the past. But if God's gotten a hold of their heart and they've given their lives over to Jesus, that they are new and the past no longer defines them. And if God's forgiven them, then we must too. And we see it here. And then notice the result. The church all throughout the region, the church all throughout the region had peace and was being built up. That they operated in peace and that the message of Jesus continued to be taken to more and more people. And more and more people found hope in Jesus. The message of the church is going forward and people are being transformed and the church is growing and it's multiplying and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. This, this is how we have to live our lives. This is how we have to live our lives. There's people that love and follow Jesus. Peace must be at the center of who we are. It must be one of the defining factors in our lives. And the question that we have to wrestle with is, is that true? In, the, in an age of chaos, in an age where nothing makes sense, in an age where, where everything is seemingly out of control, do we, as people that love and follow after Jesus, live a life differently? Do we recognize that in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all this craziness, we have hope and we have peace? And that our circumstances and our situations do not get to define our outlook. But that our faith and our trust in God define our outlook. And that we have an ultimate hope that generates a peace that surpasses all understanding. So that no matter what the craziness and no matter what the chaos of today that is thrown our way, that ultimately we do not crumble. But that we have lives that are defined by peace. And it starts with us individually and then extends to us corporately. And that as a church, we operate in a, in a way that we're just certain of this fact, that God is in control. That God is in control. And, and we, we, are, we are energized to be used by him so that we see the message of Jesus continue to be proclaimed. And we see more and more people come into the fold and we multiply ministry and we multiply the mission to see more and more people introduced to this life-altering hope of Jesus and notice what's foundational to them, that they walk in the fear of the Lord. That there is a reverence and a holiness that they hold God in high regard. And yes, we have access to God, but we also recognize the fact that we are not on God's level. And he is so much greater and so much higher than us, and we hold God in high esteem. 
And we hold him in high regard. This is foundational to the church. And what else is foundational to the church is the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit comes and he guides and he directs and he comforts the hearts of his people. If you're a follower of Jesus and peace and comfort are not hallmarks in your life, then you're just, you're just doing life wrong. You're living life wrong. There's something out of balance in your life. If yes, I recognize it's a crazy and a chaotic world, but if peace is not a hallmark in your life, if comfort is not something that you would define yourself as being in the state of, then the Spirit of God has, has worked, and you need to really wrestle through what is out of balance in your life. Because a life that is lived in pursuit of God, following after Jesus, yielding to the Holy Spirit, will bring about comfort and peace. It doesn't mean every situation, every circumstance you find yourself in is going to be comfortable or ideal, but it does mean that there will be a spirit and an attitude of comfort that guides your heart. And these were hallmarks for the church. And now Saul is sent away, but ministry still happens. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Ministry still happening, even though Saul has been sent away. And now Peter, who during the course of this time has been going from town to town and region to region, still proclaiming the hope of Jesus, he encounters this paralyzed man. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. God does the supernatural. He does the supernatural through Peter, and people are drawn to him. And we continue. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Rough name, but that's what it was. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And now we're introduced, we're introduced to a disciple. Her, her real name is Tabitha, but everybody called her Dorcas. And we're introduced to her and notice how she's defined. That she was full of good works and acts of charity. Good works and acts of charity. She became ill and, and she died. And this is something that we all have to wrestle with. But when our lives are over, and the obituary is written, and then that fades. And it's just a sentence or two. How do we want to be remembered? I can think, what an incredible way. What an incredible way to be remembered. That here she is, and she is full of good works and acts of charity. You're going to be remembered for something. And when it's really that one or two sentences, 
What do you want that one or two sentences to be? For Tabitha, for Dorcas, it was good works and acts of charity. Now, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. What an incredible legacy that she's remembered here. She is remembered for good works and acts of charity. And there are, there's just this room full of widows. And there they are, holding on to garments, holding on to the things that she has blessed them with, the things that she has done to make their life better, to meet their needs. What an incredible legacy we see in this room. And Peter gets there. And he sees this legacy. And he sees what's going on. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. We see another incredible miracle. We see God again doing the supernatural through Peter. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So word of this spreads across the city, across the town. Of course it does. Of what Peter has done. And more and more people recognize there's no medical explanation for this. There's no natural explanation for this. It's impossible to explain except for this fact that God is supernatural and God can do more than we can ever fathom or understand. And we see it on display right here. So more and more people put their faith and their trust in Jesus. They follow after him. And then at the end of, the end of Acts chapter 9, we're introduced to this man named Simon, a tanner. Now, in the midst of all of this, why is this important? Why does Luke, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit in writing the book of Acts, write about where Peter's staying? I mean, maybe to give us some Historical standpoint, okay. But why tell us all about Tabitha and Dorcas and, and the fact that, that she made garments for people? That she, was, that she was known for good works and acts of charity. I mean, recognize Peter, well, he... God did the supernatural and the miraculous through him, so, so that makes sense. But, you know, this information about Dorcas, we're not told much about. And Barnabas, earlier, 
I mean, recognize that there was somebody who put themselves out there. I said, come on, when everybody else was like this. But other than just some historical context, why, why tell us all of this? And I'm convinced the answer is because all of this reminds us once again of the importance of community. The importance of all of God's people working together to accomplish something greater than we can ever factor, than we can ever imagine. That here we have everyday people in the midst of their everyday lives being who they are and doing what they do and God using it all together for something so much greater and so much grander than they could ever have imagined. The people, as they have transferred their faith and their trust in Jesus, and they're living their lives accordingly. They're just doing what they do. The, the Barnabas is just generous. And he's just somebody that supports people. When everybody else would keep him away, he is somebody who's generous, and he says, no. I want to be the person that supports people. I want to be the person that welcomes people. That, that Simon, who we're just introduced here, that he just says, I, I got a place, and I'll be hospitable. I'll welcome you into my home. That Tabitha Dorcas just said, hey, I can make clothing. I want to use it. To bless you. See, sometimes we think that God's calling us to, to all these grand things, and sometimes He is. But sometimes God just calls us to be the people that He's made us to be. And to serve Him with the, by being the people that we are. And the places that He's put us. And the impact will be greater than we can ever imagine. I was a student pastor in Mississippi. And one of the times I was given the message to the church, I wanted to, I wanted to illustrate something. And I, wanted, I was talking about trusting in God. And I, I, I came up with this illustration of, of driving through heavy fog is, is if you've ever spent some time in the humidity of, of Mississippi and some of the temperature changes, the, the fog can be really heavy. And I, I wanted to talk about this idea of, of just trusting God even when we can't see far beyond where we are. And so we set it all up. We did all the measurements. We were, we were bringing in a brand new car from the car dealership. We set up the fog machine. We were going to, we had 
the, the lights ready to go on the car. Everything was going to be great until the day before when all of a sudden something happened with the new car that was sent in and it was a little bit, just a little bit bigger than we could get it in the doors. And so we had to scramble on Saturday night. We figured out a way to get an ATV in there. It wasn't ideal, but I'm like, all right, we can still go with it. We had two services. The first service was a, a classical music service. It wasn't very well attended. It was kind of like the dress rehearsal, the dry run. You got to try everything else. And, and so we went through with it. Everything worked fine. And then something happened in between that first service and the second service. And I don't know if, if somebody hit the, the fog machine. I don't know if something was moved. All I know is in the second service, when I get to that point of, of the illustration, I'm on the stage, and I hear the fog machine going out, and I look over to my right, and I can still see this to, my, to this day when I think about it. Just all the fog not going up in front of the car, but just pouring out on the audience. And it was heavy. And it's water-based, so nothing, nothing's going to hurt you. It's all psychological. But all of a sudden, all these people are just getting just covered in this mist. And there's nothing I can do. I'm in the middle of the story. I'm on stage. I don't have control of the fog. And even if they cut it off right then, it still takes a minute to communicate. So fog is just pouring out on these people. They're just covered. And I see the first person get up. Just walk out. And then the second, and then the third. And then it just turned into a scene from like Exodus where everybody is just getting up and pouring out. And I'm up there, and I'm defeated, and I'm discouraged, and I look over, and my eyes lock with a man named Sid. And Sid was the father of one of my friends. And Sid hated it. He hated it any time I would use illustrations. He'd say, cut the theatrics, Brian. Hated them. And our eyes locked. And he nodded. And there sat a man who hated everything about what was going on. Who was in the midst of chemotherapy, cancer treatments. When everybody else poured out of the section, he sat right there. And he let me know. I had his support. You know, sometimes we think that we have to do all of these grand, incredible things to serve God. And I suggest sometimes God does call us to some really big, incredible things. We have an opportunity to serve God each and every day. By using the gifts and the talents that he's given us. By being hospitable. By being generous. By doing what we can to impact the kingdom of God, to impact the church, and to impact our communities. And if we'll be faithful to do just that, God will take it. And he will bless it, and he will do more with it than we can 
ever imagine. Sometimes it's as easy as us just being that voice of support. When everybody else says no, we just say no. We recognize that God changes people's lives. And we have the spirit of Barnabas. We just say, come on. Sometimes it's us just recognizing, hey, I can make clothes for somebody. And I can meet a tangible need. Sometimes it's us just saying, I got a place for somebody that needs it. God has positioned you where he's positioned you for a purpose. God has gifted you with the gifts and talents and abilities that you have for a reason. None of this is done by mistake. And God will bring it all together in a way much greater than we can ever imagine if we will be faithful and be the people and use the gifts that he's given us for his glory. God, I pray that we would be people that serve you. When you call us to really big things, and when you call us to smaller things that we don't even understand fully how you're going to use to impact people and places, I pray that we would remember that life change happens as a result of people putting their faith and trust in your son Jesus and I pray that this would be a place that Lakeside would be a place where we're excited about that life change and I pray that it would start with us analyzing our hearts and just asking God are there people that I'm bitter with are there people I need to forgive Are there people who've hurt me in the past that I'm unwilling to see that you're working in their life? And God, if that's accurate, then I pray that we would deal with that. I pray we would recognize, God, that you've positioned us where you've positioned us and you've gifted us how you've gifted us for a reason. And while we may not always understand what you're up to, and while we may not think like it's a big deal, God, we recognize that you use it all together in ways that are greater than we can even understand. So I pray we'll be faithful. I pray we'll be generous. I pray we'll be supportive. I pray we'll utilize our gifts to help others. I pray we'll welcome people into our homes. pray, God, that the peace of a life lived in pursuit of you would resonate in our hearts. Comfort us and guide us as we walk in your spirit. In your son Jesus' name we pray.